Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave it There are three species of wildlife that can be categorized as indicator species for the health of the southeastern United States pine savanna ecosystem. Those three species are beloved bobwhite quail, Jess McGuire's beloved gopher tortoise, and we have a new focus for today's conversation, the number three species the red cockaded woodpecker. So on today's episode of On the Wing podcast, we're going to focus on the red cockaded woodpecker and how helping improve habitat for this endangered bird will actually also help the southeastern United States bobwhite quail population to explode. Joining me for today's episode are... Joe Burnham, a wildlife biologist with the Georgia DNR and a red cockaded woodpecker expert, and Quail Forever's very own, the biggest fan of the gopher tortoise in the uh, contiguous 48 states. We don't know about Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, our very own Dr. Jessica McGuire back on the podcast, our Working Lands for Wildlife Bob White Quail Framework coordinator jess i'll start with you welcome back hi how's that for an introduction the the biggest fan of the gopher tortoise (laughs) in the contiguous forty. yeah i guess as far as uh reptiles go for sure yeah i I might i might be i'm not sure there's a pretty good fan base for the gopher tortoise though well i saw i think it was over the weekend there's a gopher tortoise in your backyard. So I have a, um, I wish I had gopher tortoises on our property, but we don't. I ha- actually have an African spur-thighed tortoise in my backyard, which is okay. a, t- a gigantic <laughs> tortoise that, that uh, is wreaking havoc in its enclosure. So yeah, gopher tortoises are much less destructive than that one. <laughs> Uh, say the say the species. It's an African spur-thighed tortoise, or some people call them a salcata. Yeah. Are they uh, are they pointers or flushers? This one's been pointing um, straight towards where we have Bob White calling. So I'm fairly certain I can unleash the beast here in a couple of months and uh, start a new trend. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, with that opening, tell us a little bit about uh, your background. Um, uh, for folks, I think this is probably the, I don't know, fourth or fifth podcast you've been on. So fo- some folks know you, but for folks that are just coming in because this uh, particular topic caught their attention, give us a little bit about uh, who you are and where you're from and what you do for yeah, so I, um, I live in uh, Georgia, in Terrell County, Georgia, just north of Albany. Uh, we are in the great location with lots of Bob White calling right now, so really lucky to be there. Um, for the organization, I guess I've been here since 2019 and uh, working very closely with USDA's NRCS Working Lands for Wildlife. So uh, working on that framework and really helping them implement it as a partner across the landscape. So we have a pretty high goals of 
getting 7 million acres enrolled in programs, USDA Farm Bill programs in the name of Bob White. So it's a, it's a big lift that we're helping our partners with and I kind of help help us do that. So kind of as a liaison for that. So it's been a lot of fun and it helps me dabble back into some science. So um, as you know, I think I mentioned it on the last podcast, we've got that Bobscapes mobile app now so people can download the app on their phone they hear bob white and they can let us know that they're hearing it and this will play into some of our our nerd models that we're building (laughs) um, to you know be able to best implement some of these programs so we know where we have the best chance of success for bob white so that's what i've been up to lately um it's been a lot of fun and it is um it is nesting season for Mm -hmm. quail so you mentioned that you're hearing them whistling. Oh, yeah. Do you, any early any early reports on nesting season success and how the bob whites are doing in Georgia? I mean, we're hearing good reports, and uh, we're getting calls from landowners that you know hadn't really heard a strong showing in the spring that are hearing them. Uh, you know, a lot of plantations that have wild birds have had good success. Uh, we were a little nervous, I think, about the rain, and we had some really freezing temperatures late in the season, but I mean, uh, Joe could probably back me up on this because he's down in near Thomasville. Uh, we're kind of two of the hot spots in Georgia. But mm. uh, I, I think it, it should be a good year. Yeah. That's great to hear. Um, Joe, without further ado, welcome to the, uh, the podcast. Give us a little bit of, of your background, who you are, what you do for uh, Georgia DNR. Okay. Well, I'm Joe Burnham. I am a wildlife biologist with Georgia DNR. I work for the wildlife conservation section, and my primary uh, job is red cockaded woodpecker biologist for the state, which means that I spend a lot of time on really nice properties monitoring our RCWs, sort of a short for, for red cockaded woodpeckers. So I'll use that throughout today. But uh, I spend a lot of time working with the birds on some nice properties, both state lands and private lands, hmm. predominantly in southwest Georgia. Um, a lot of quail plantations. Um, and with that comes a lot of prescribed fire and, and uh, things of that nature. So. So tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you got your degree, what, how, yep. what led you to be, I got to believe you're the only red cockaded woodpecker biologist serving in that specific role in the country, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, no, there's quite a few of us. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, in the southeastern states, sure. Um, I'm originally from South Georgia. I grew up in North Florida and Mm. South Georgia um, in a rural area. I had various members of my family who who managed quail plantations and and or farmed. So sort of in that world from from the get-go. And I I, I did my undergraduate and my graduate work at the University of Georgia. Hmm. And uh, my graduate work was through Tall Timbers, okay. uh, which you guys are all familiar with, I'm sure. Yep. I looked at nesting and attendance behaviors of Bob Whites uh, through Tall Timbers. So that's when I did my graduate work. I've always been interest, interested in quail and turkeys and, and upland game birds. Um, and at, at this, this position became available. It was in an area that, that I was from and knew. And uh, I found RCWs fascinating from their life history and and where they live, and so it was a it was a wonderful opportunity, hmm. uh, and it's been great. So I made the 
obviously naive comment that you're the only <laughs> red cockaded biologist for a state agency, like a completely focused. So is that pretty standard? Like there's one of you, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase, and and. Florida and South Carolina yeah. is like so there's sure. it really okay so is that true sure. like I think about state agencies and I know like there's upland biologists right and South Dakota upland biologists is focused on pheasants and sharp tails and prairie chickens and then you know the, the Michigan DNR upland biologist is worried about woodcock and rough grouse and pheasant is it unique to have a biologist specific to a species or is that standard as, as practice in the south well it probably varies by state but with i'm in the wildlife conservation section we focus primarily on non-game species and so it's not unusual for us to have a biologist that is dedicated to um, certain species gopher tortoises or mm. rcws or uh, right whales or, or whatever the case may be. We do overlap with other species, but we sometimes have a focus. Hmm. And I think most of the southeastern states with RCWs have biologists that are somewhat dedicated to them. Hmm. Uh, the National Forest also, and there's also a number of contract biologists too that, that monitor and, and keep track of woodpecker populations. Cool. Yeah. Jess, you, you yeah, had a point. So You're flagging. It's, uh, it's, it's really widespread. So for those that don't know, the uh, RCW has been listed as endangered since the 1970s, you know, when, um, you know, they're having trouble getting nests to succeed, you know, because of chemicals and all that. Um, and then they actually preceded the Endangered Species Act, which a lot of people don't realize. Hmm. And uh, the ESA or Endangered Species Act was enabled in 1973. So a lot of times when you have these high profile or ESA species, the state agencies put a lot of effort into either keeping them from disappearing or uh, implementing mm -hmm. conservation members to um, implement conservation measures to build their numbers. So that's the case with RCWs and they're turning oh. into quite the success story, which I won't steal any of Joe's thunder. But um, like you <laughs> said, a lot of uh, you know bases, military bases will have uh, dedicated staff, like sometimes teams to wow. RCWs because um, they are, they do require a lot of effort and care on the landscape. Um, so little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of the greatest success stories. That's right. And like a fun fact is wow. I was actually in the RCW position in Georgia for a brief time while Joe took a little foray into academia and then came back. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a, one of the best positions, I think you could have in an agency and it's also one of the hardest huh well that makes for a great transition to the concept here for this episode is the intersection between rcw red cockaded woodpeckers and bob white quail jess this was your idea um so set the stage for us and what you envisioned this conversation to be focused on. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, a lot of people want to split game versus non-game or, you know, there's there's a lot of feeling that you can't manage for something that's endangered and also something managed for something that we love to hunt. But in the case of, you know, RCWs and quail or gopher tortoises and quail, a lot of the management principles 
really align well for all of those species hmm. to thrive. And I think, you know, some species like the RCW kind of have a bad rap in some circles uh, with thinking that you can't have quail and RCWs and you absolutely can. And some of the work, the amazing work that Joe and his colleagues are doing is positive proof. You can't get any better proof than the results that they're seeing and uh, happy, happy hunting and uh, actually increased opportunity and as a result, which he'll hopefully touch on here in a minute. So you made a comment about like, there's a, a perception that you can't do what's needed for the woodpeckers yeah. and actually have quail. What, what's that perception wrapped around? Is it the, is it a perception of the need for kind of a wilderness on where there's people not moving through with their dogs chasing quail? Is that, is that what that perception is Yeah. About? So I think part of it is just that um, pressure on the landscape and that stress that added activity adds in the environment, but also the type of management that's necessary to keep these species thriving on the landscape. You know, mm -hmm. like one of the things we talk about is how many trees are on the ground, you know, and there's this mm -hmm. perception that RCWs need way more trees than could have um, quail on the ground. And really that's not true. The RCWs thrive on a pine savanna landscape. That's the same landscape as uh, quail and fire needs to be able to come through. You need to have good stuff on the ground to produce the insects that want to climb the trees that the RCWs end up taking care of. So it's a really cool ecosystem. And, uh, you know, when RCWs were first getting listed, there was this unfortunate thing that happened where people were cutting down their trees to get rid of RCWs because hmm. they were worried about the impacts of listing. But when all along huh. we could manage for it all but like i said i don't want to steal joe's thunder this is this no is that's it's fascinating though world. it's like now it in in the west the western united states there's that um that phrase shoot shovel and shut up related to having endangered species on your property before the federal government knows mm -hmm. right kill them all so you don't have to fall under regulate. I've never heard of, so it would make sense though, right? Like you have these birds that are connected yeah. to tree, <laughs> right? It's just different phrasing. Um, and it, it, it also connects in my mind, like you, as you talk about, the more I learn and understand about Bob White quail and the connection to tree, yeah, you want some tree, but it, you don't need tons of trees. It's, it is about stem density, right? And you need kind of, there's a sweet spot there so we'll get into that with with joe as he talks about habitat but let's start high level joe let's talk about the red cockaded woodpecker the first thing is what the heck's cockaded mean because i <laughs> that's I've, a good question i find myself making sure i don't screw up how i yeah. pronounce that so tell what does We've, it mean I, i've heard everything believe me when, when folks call with questions but uh you know, it, it is the red cockaded woodpecker, and, and the impression most people have is that there's this big red head on the bird. Yeah, like so a pileated. Everybody sees them everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. It's actually a very small tuft of feathers uh, between the crown of the bird and the, the white patch mm -hmm. on the side of its head. And it's it's not even really that visible in the field. It's not a very good mark for determining male or female. The males have it. Uh, but if you have them in hand, you can spread the feathers and see it, or sometimes if they're really excited, 
you can see it huh. here in the field. But it comes from uh, back in the day, 1800s, uh, a cockade was an ornament worn on a hat. All right, so give us the, the 411 on red cockaded woodpeckers biology like what's their life cycle how long do they live where do they live just what top of mind tell us about the, the wood sure they're, they're a fascinating bird they are endemic to the southeast pine systems open mature fire maintained pine systems uh, primarily associated with longleaf pine um, they are especially interesting in the fact that they only excavate their cavities in a living pine tree which is they're the only North American woodpecker to do so. We think of woodpeckers using snags where the, the wood is rotten and soft mm -hmm. and easy to make a cavity, but they do it in living pines. Um, like I say, primarily longleaf, but also shortleaf and loblolly too. Um, but <clears throat> they need extensive stands of open, fire-maintained, mature, old forest. Hmm. Uh, they're making these cavities in living trees and there's red heart, there's red heart fungus that gets in these longleaf pine when they get to be 90, 100 years old, which softens that really hard heartwood and makes it easier to excavate a cavity. Hmm. And so <clears throat> they, they really need these large, open, old stands to thrive. And there's just not a lot of that anymore. Um, so they're a specialist of that system, sort of like the gopher tortoise is. Mm -hmm. uh, and the bobwhite and backman sparrows. There's a number of species that, that depend on this ecosystem and they're kind of a keystone species in that they, uh, if you want to refer to them as that, in, in that they create cavities for a lot of other things. Uh, you know, wood ducks, flying squirrels, mm. corn snakes, all sorts of things use their cavities. Hmm. So, but uh, yeah, they are endangered primarily because of lack of habitat. We've lost some 98% hmm. of their uh, historic habitat and so they're down to a few isolated populations. Wow. And Jess alluded to there's been some um, positive um, things happening where populations yes. are coming back. Yeah, they're actually doing quite well where there's sufficient habitat mm -hmm. and we're able to manage for them on both uh, military installations, national forests, hmm. uh, some state lands. And then where I'm at in the Thomasville, Tallahassee area, uh, the Red Hills, that's actually the largest population of RCWs on private lands anywhere. Hmm. And also, not coincidentally, one of the finest quail hunting areas in the world. All right, uh, let's let's turn it, Jess, from red cockaded woodpeckers. I have an idea. I can see where you're laying the cookie crumbs for me to follow. There, It's making sense. But articulate it, the connection between red cockaded woodpeckers and bobwhite quail. So I, they, you know, that like I, I said, their habitat management is compatible, and we have some um, private landowners that it's a lot of fun. They'll they'll go, they'll take their friends out quail hunting the property during the day, and then at night they'll be roosting the woodpeckers with binoculars uh, on the back of the jeep that they hunted in earlier, and you know they huh. named them. So for a while, um, we were putting leg bands on the adult birds or the, the birds. So they, they used to monitor and I don't think you're doing it anymore, Joe. Are you banding anymore in pat nestlings? Oh, yes, awesome. I am actually. I've banded about nice. 70. All right. So, so yeah. some, some people get some of those birds on their property, you know, with good, with mm. good management and old enough trees, or uh, I don't think we mentioned it really in depth, but, you have to actually put a cavity in some of these trees. So an artificial 
cavity and it's a wooden box usually made out of some nice cedar that uh, won't rot too quickly hmm. unless a pileated gets at it but um so some landowners and, go ahead. And that's i'm sorry and that's that's something that's been really really critical to uh the, the rcw recovery is the <clears throat> excuse me is the inserts that jess talked about huh we mentioned how long it takes them it can take them months to excavate a cavity in a living pine so it's very difficult and and they're not really a migratory species so even if if a bird showed up in suitable habitat but it was unoccupied by their rcws they have nowhere to live so they would have to stay there for months at a time making a cavity on their own oh wow and it's it's probably not going to stay they're probably going to keep moving yeah but we can come in and put in these inserts into a tree and have a ready-made home Huh. So that if a bird shows up, they'll take to the cavity instantly, or in some cases, we'll translocate or move birds to that area and put them there, and they'll typically remain. And, and they readily accept and move into those inserts? Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So sometimes sometimes within days. Huh. And then you have to replace them from time to time, and sometimes, you know, they'll be sitting right there on the tree with you while you're putting yes. their their new box in the tree, kind of saying, are you, are you done with my new house yet? You know, they're, they're kind of sitting there waiting <laughs> totally. for the upgrade. But, you know, to connect to Bob White, we, I mean, these places are usually loaded with wild birds because they've benefited from the uh, hmm. the habitat enhancements on the property. So on some of the WMAs that we've talked about in the past before with Dallas Ingram, the state quail biologist for Georgia, um, you know, a lot of effort has been put into those quail areas and the, it's been mutually beneficial to both species and you know people really enjoy coming they'll they'll hunt and then they'll go watch the woodpeckers because they're a really fun charismatic little bird that even if you're don't bird they're just they're just fun to sit and watch and they'll be peeping at you as you miss your your shot too so <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> there's a lot of that yeah. <laughs> and luckily the cavities are high enough so when you pepper the pines you're not gonna worry about their box but yeah it's, uh, they... so talk about that the so you, you've alluded to you both have alluded to the need for fire mm -hmm. on the landscape for creating the habitat necessary of the red cockaded woodpecker we've talked about that frequently with quail right like we need prescribed fire every two years really in the southeast because of the tremendous growing conditions otherwise that understory just explodes too fast and the birds can't move around why does that matter for woodpeckers when they're up and moving like you said they're not even at eye level why why is prescribed fire important to a woodpecker's life cycle joe they do not tolerate a hardwood midstory. Um, once a midstory gets up seven, eight, nine feet, which in, in our part of the world can sometimes, if you don't burn for three years, mm. you can have an eight or nine foot midstory. Um, they don't tolerate a midstory for one thing. Um, another issue is their food comes from the ground up. Their food is produced in that grassy, herbaceous, forb mm. ground cover. And in the absence of fire, sweet guns and other hardwoods shade that out. And take away a lot of the food, take away a lot of the cover for other species huh. and inhibit longleaf regeneration. So fire is fire is the single most important thing, um, fire and long-term timber management for RCWs and Bob White, huh. in my mind. Most cost-effective natural process we have. 
you know, on hand. When you talk about the food comes from the ground, like I'm thinking ants and insects, uh, any kind ants, of any beetles, spiders. Okay, if it fits, and, and <laughs> It fits in their yeah. beak, right? Pretty much, pretty much. And you mentioned it's the only woodpecker that kind of lives in, on living pine trees as opposed to... Excavate their cavities in living pines. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. eating, they, they'll mm -hmm. eat wherever they can find bugs. They will. Yeah. It's, it's still primarily living trees. But yeah, if you have, a, if you have an area where lightning or, or hmm. beetles killed a few trees and insects get on them, they'll go to those places like a buffet huh. and just hammer them until they're gone. I mentioned the third species here, the gopher tortoise. Mm -hmm. Is that fire critically important important to the gopher tortoise as well, or is that a little different habitat? No, it's it's all the same, um, the same frequency of fire. You know, because you figure when you're getting good fire on the ground, you're limiting that oak midstory. You're letting that sunlight mm -hmm. hit the ground, which is what allows all your quality um, forbs, legumes, grasses. You know, the good groceries to really grow. So, I mean, not only that's food for the gopher tortoises, it's, it's cover that open space is important for, you know, Bob white on the ground. It's important for gopher tortoise movement on the ground. So picture a gopher tortoise nest, uh, hatchling kind of, you know, it's just hatched out of this ping pong ball size. It's really small. And then picture your, uh, you know, hatchling quail, you know, your chicks. Yeah. So you're kind of getting, you need the same structure for both to survive. Sure. It's the difference is gopher tortoises are only putting out a couple offspring a season. If every year, there's a lot of evidence to show that they don't necessarily produce every year. So they need even more protection than our, our little Bob white running around. Um, and luckily more produced of them. But uh, the goal of a tortoise is to pretty much replace itself throughout its lifetime so but they need the same structure the same open ground well yeah they all evolve right. together in the same system yep. and so um you know fire is an important important mm -hmm. thing for all of them so i know every time we have a conversation jess i i devolve into a gopher <laughs> tortoise lightning around a question but i gotta ask you a couple things so you know i think about turtles versus tortoises right like turtles I relate mentally to near water. That's not the case with tortoises. And I'm assuming gopher tortoise, they're living out in the woods. They don't need to be near water. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Yep. They get most of their water from the food that they eat. So, and you know, in the okay. South, we've got still, you know, cactus on the ground that of course has a lot of water. A lot of the legumes hmm. hold a lot of water and you'll see them actually go into the puddles, you know, depressions, in the landscape that collect water and they'll they'll get some water from that sometimes but um you know that really hmm. wide open space and you do find them near water sometimes because the way the topography is and the well-drained soils tend to shift that way on ridges and in florida where they've had limited space they've actually moved towards dikes so where sand has been built hmm. up um, so they they love you know, food plot sometimes, but that open openness is hmm. where they thrive and not. There. So, okay. So then I'm think about fire. Red cockaded woodpeckers and bobwhite quail have wings to get away. Like I'm assuming. So when there's fire on the landscape, does it go for tortoise go under not underground? 
Do they go into into the caves or t- right. what, what's the burrow? Right so they yeah, burrows. so they dig burrows that are about you know could be can be up to thirty feet long and ten to twenty feet wow. deep depending on the water table. So if they are near water and they go too deep, it will ping the water table and it will flood their burrow even during times of hmm. heavy flooding. But the tortoises have evolved in a way that they have strategically placed a ton of little holes on the landscape. So one burrow does not mean one tortoise. One tortoise can be living in, you know, 20 burrows across the landscape. It just depends on what's there. So they're pretty good at finding that hole fast or hunkering down. And we rarely see mortality in tortoises from fires. And in fact, you know, other animals, they're fast. (laughs) Really? Wow. Other animals use their burrow to retreat to in during a fire. Uh, We've seen Bob White use it. Uh, Reggie Jackson, Georgia DNR used to say that they make a great air raid shelter for quail. So the burrows mm-hmm. also are a good place to get out of the way of aerial predators. But um, over 360 species have been documented using tortoise burrows. So they're critical wow. to the landscape. But I don't know, Joe, I don't think RCW has ever ducked down in one. <laughs> <laughs> Not and, and, and also the way we burn our ignition patterns don't typically create super, super fast right. mm-hmm. fires you know and these critters again are so used to this relatively frequent mm-hmm. phenomenon of the landscape they just yep. go down in a burrow and come right back that's up. the key right because if you're doing it every two years then the fuel right. load isn't going to exactly. create a super hot intense you know mag like the the wildfires you see out west that's really right it's completely different when you're doing it from a management perspective isn't it mm-hmm. it is yeah all of our uh well, WMAs here in Southwest Georgia, most of them are quail focal areas. Mm. Several of those have RCWs. And the upland pine on those WMAs is burned on a two-year cycle. So every stand is burned every other year. Mm. Um, most of the quail properties in the region are the same way. Um, because like you said, it keeps fuel loads down. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps keep that understory component in in the shape where we like it, sure. with a mixture of grasses and forbs. And it keeps out those hardwoods. So. What- when you again i'm relating this to the west and i apologize but i think about you know we talk about the grasslands and the integrity of the grasslands in the western united states and the great plains and it was american bison that naturally kept grasslands intact and and lightning strikes that created fires in the southeast was it like same sort of not i'm assuming not bison but I'm assuming it was it was fires. It was natural fires that maintained this ecosystem where red-cockaded woodpeckers, gopher tortoise, and bobway quail did have that understory that they needed naturally occurring. Is that true, Joe? Yes, the coastal plain of, of the southeast has a lot of lightning strikes, especially in the summer months. Mm. And <clears throat> one of our primary uh, ground cover plants is wiregrass, which is which loves to burn. And so, you know, historically, lightning may strike a tree um, or Native Americans may light a fire. They also mm. have a, a great deal of prescribed fire for many of the same reasons we do. Uh, but, you know, lightning would strike a tree and ignite a fire and it may burn for miles until it, until it hit a creek or a river or a rainstorm put it out. And this happened all the time, mm. um, year after year for thousands of years. Uh, and, and so now, uh, clearly, 
that's not the case with highways and, and neighborhoods and towns. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're reduced to these smaller patches where we have to go in and do it um, with intention. But we like to think that the outcome is still the same. Uh, Jess, as you think about our Quail Forever chapters, in the, as well as the landowners that you work with and our biologists work with, what, what sort of things do you want them to, to take away from this conversation to connect the dots between the, the woodpecker, the tortoise, and the bobwhite quail? Yeah. To not, uh, you know, an important thing that we t work with landowners is to not disregard the potential your property has for an endangered species and the tools you can get as a result of that. So finding a gopher tortoise or seeing a red cockaded woodpecker or any other suite of species that, you know, are of concern, bring in a lot of assistance sometimes. So, you mm. know, state agencies have programs that help you manage your property. Of course, USDA farm bill programs are often targeted towards specific landscapes or specific species. So it can really help you obtain your, your goals. And the gopher tortoise program for a long time in Georgia, we sold it as a quail program because the management practices were completely compatible and you were helping one, you're actually getting credit for your gopher tortoises in the, in the name of Bob White management to mm -hmm. grow your Bob White population. Uh, and in, increase that that opportunity on your own property. So, you know, a lot of these work hand in hand and, you know, we've gotten better reports in turkey numbers. So there's nothing quite better than uh, when we have our hunting season line up here in Georgia, if I could ever handle my call and my gun at the same time. Um, <laughs> it, it was a rough season for me this year, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we see turkey numbers improving and mm. nesting success improving when we didn't necessarily target turkey but because it's an ecosystem approach and who mm. cares what species it's in the name of like you know just we really need to put aside those biases towards some of these and let them work for you uh, it brings new partners to the table and you know joe and i have been working with each other i was thinking about it and you know over 10 years and it was because of our our interest in quail and our interest in, you know, the gopher tortoises and RCWs. And, you know, it's, uh, it brings a lot of more people to the table for assistance. And I think, you know, sometimes it can be scary, the thought of endangered species on your property, but like I said, let them work for you. Uh, yeah. I work with, <clears throat> as I mentioned, a lot of, a lot of private landowners, especially in the Red Hills here who may have, 10, 12,000 acre properties, and their primary focus is bobwhite quail. It, it, maybe I should back up and just talk a little bit about the Red Hills really quickly. It's, it, it's a region between Thomasville and Tallahassee, Florida, and it's about 300,000 contiguous acres um, of properties that are managed for bobwhite mm. quail and have been for over 100 years mm -hmm. um, in a lot of cases. And, and as I said before, they have the largest RCW population that's found on private lands anywhere within the species range and also phenomenal quail numbers. Mm -hmm. So that, that alone shows that there can be a nice meshing of, of the two. Um, and a lot of these landowners and managers are pretty proud of their woodpeckers. I was actually talking with one last week, a manager of a very large property who actually reintroduced RCWs to their property mm. a couple of years ago. And I knew we were doing this. So I, was, I had my take, you know, but I wanted to talk to him and see, well, what you were on the ground, impression of how having RCWs on your property has changed your management philosophy. 
with regards to Popeye. Yes. What's what's it done? His his quote was, "It hasn't changed a damn thing." He said, "We view it as being hand in glove." Huh. Um, and in fact, it's a lot of folks view it as sort of value added. I mean, it's you know, it's, there's an intrinsic value to it, I think, and and an, an aesthetic value. But he said they're still finding seven plus cubbies an hour, which is pretty solid. Um, it hasn't really changed anything they're doing. So it's a great illustration, no matter what part of the country they. It, People that love to bird hunt or love to manage their property, they, they maybe have a spe- specific upland game bird in mind, but when they see, in this case, red cockaded woodpeckers or gopher tortoises or monarch butterflies or a Dakota skipper or a sharp tail, it's like that brings great joy, right? Beyond just the targeted species when you're doing great things on the land for habitat, so many ripple effects happen with wildlife and that does bring a deeper level of joy to that landowner to that hunter and and it also illustrates again like the original conservationists really were hunters who understood like they they lace up the boots and chase a dog right and you see the natural world in its natural state and how it should be and and this is a good example of you know the linkage between what what our dogs are focused on, what we start be fo- being focused on, but having a broader view of things and and everything from a turtle on the ground to a woodpecker up at the the you know above Jess's shotgun range <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to what our eyes can see naturally with the bobwhite quail, how it is all interlinked together. I think it's a reflection of, of just general wise stewardship and mm-hmm. good management. I mean, if you've got RCWs, you're you're doing wonderful things for this for the system or or, or tortoises, um, you know. And, and a lot of these landowners are really proud of it. Like you say, um, they'll they'll want us to mark their woodpecker trees so that, so that when when they're out on the wagon quail hunting, they can show their guests because mm. they're you know proud of it. And and, and Jess mentioned um, roosting the birds. They they go to roost in their cavities each night. And we may be referring to the same landowner, but. Um, Another one who, another landowner who did not have woodpeckers, but, but wanted some. And so we put in cavities and he ended up having birds move over naturally. He was so proud of those birds. And actually he had a uh, former president, Jimmy Carter huh. hunting one day. And uh, they actually went back that evening and roosted the birds with president Carter and secret service agents. Wow. So it's probably the only president to ever roost. Around. <laughs> Joe, earlier in the conversation, we talked about the mentality of uh, shoot, shovel and shut up, which illustrates the fear that exists, particularly with private landowners around the Endangered Species Act. There's an important tool when it comes to the red cockaded woodpecker that landowners can find some alleviation to that fear. Tell us about that tool. Yeah, so the Safe Harbor Program uh, is, a, is a, a program we use to work with private landowners um, who both have woodpeckers and who could potentially have woodpeckers. And what it is, is it's a federal program that's um, administered by the states. But ultimately, the way it works is um, when the landowner enrolls, and it's a voluntary program, uh, when they enroll, they are uh, provided with a baseline, however many woodpeckers are on their property at the time of enrollment. And that's what they're responsible for. That number can be zero. Hmm. So landowners who have suitable habitat but don't have woodpeckers 
uh, can enroll in that program with a zero baseline. And then should, uh, you know, five, 10 years down the road, should they end up with RCWs on their property because of their good stewardship and good management, they don't incur any other responsibility. So it's a way to sort of reward them for uh, good management practices. Uh, and, and the program's been very good. It, it benefits landowners and it benefits the woodpecker. Um, in the state of Georgia, we have 193,000 acres uh, enrolled in Safe Harbor, and we have uh, 160 something groups of woodpeckers covered. Oh, wow. um, yeah. And so many landowners enrolled with zero, but because of those regulatory assurances, they've been interested in actually uh, bringing birds in. And so that's a win-win. That's a win for the birds. That's a win for the landowners and a win for the ecosystem. So it's been a very good program. Right. It really illustrates that, that um, attempt and obviously successful based on the number of acres enrolled to take sure. away that concern when you do have a species that's on the endangered species list that you can actually do some good things and take sure. out the fear. Well, it's counterproductive to to want folks uh, to do this this good management for bobolites, for RCWs, but then to turn around and, and have there be uh, some restrictions that may that may not be what they want to deal with. So this came about as a way to sort of alleviate that and, uh, you know, encourage wise stewardship. Yeah, right on. Jess, if folks want to learn more, especially in the southeastern United States, to create better habitat on the landscape for bobway quail, how would you direct them? So I would have them start with our farm bill biologists or private land biologists, and they can find them by going to our website, quailforever.org. Scroll down to the bottom, click on the link that says find a biologist, and you can figure out who's closest to you. And most of them have good networks. You know what the beauty of their positions are. A lot of them sit in USDA service centers, so they're close to the resources that are available in terms of farm bill programs. And they should have good connections with their state agency partners as well. So they should be fairly well tied in to what resources are available locally and you know also our chapters you know that's one thing we didn't really key in on much on this podcast but we have in the past uh, mm -hmm. how, how awesome our chapters have been in helping us meet some of our habitat management goals on our quill focal areas and that's another thing is you know they're they're available to help connect chapters to projects as well you know whether it's putting bird boxes together one weekend or you know, helping get fire on the ground or spraying an understory. Our chapters have volunteered and helped get a lot of this work done. So but right that's on. a good place to get help. And you mentioned the Bobscapes um, app. Mm -hmm. I, I, wanna, I want you to hit that one more time because yeah. that is a real innovative, fun, new citizen science uh, effort yes. that any member, chapter, volunteer, landowner can participate in. Yeah, so that's our new mobile app, Bobscapes, so B-O-B-S-C-A-P-S dot org, and you can find it in the Apple or uh, the any of your app stores. It is now live, and you can record your Bob White sightings as well as ask for help. So it's a good place we can connect you to your nearest biologist that way if you want to, or just keep track of your bird sightings. Uh, if you're someone that uses the other apps to keep track, that's fine. Uh, we're getting data from those as well. But if you want to engage more with Quill Forever biologists and your state agency partners, that's a good way to do it. And one one additional shout out as we uh, come to closing thoughts. Um, 
last episode of On the Wing podcast, we had Dave Simonet on lead singer of Trampled by Turtles. He's traveling <laughs> the southeastern United States right now with Zach Bryan. He's the opening, yes. or Trampled is the opening act for Zach Bryan. And, and Trampled and Dave have been so gracious uh, with partnering with our organization, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, um, the last few years. If you go to quailforever.org slash trampled, you'll see our very first Trampled by Quail membership offer with a killer Quail Forever Trampled by Turtles collaborative t-shirt. Um, I'd love for you to check that out if you're uh, maybe a Pheasants Forever member and, and are interested in helping um, with our Quail Forever conservation efforts. Maybe interested in going quail hunting one day. Please check out quailforever.org backslash trampled and uh, you'll be helping support a great cause all right jess joe thank you so much for dedicating your time this morning to this conversation i love when we talk about our clearly our passion is bob boy quail at least my passion (laughs) is upland game birds but i do love and, and Folks are tired of me here, you know, the circle of life, the web of life, right? Like Hakuna Matata, everybody. Like, when we, when the depth of our mission is, you know, when we can link it all together with clean water, sustainable um, environment, a resilient climate, and a whole bunch of other wildlife species that we maybe take for granted. And in this case, the red cockaded woodpecker. If you were going to, so I really love a conversation like this one. I'm going to ask each of you to put a bow on it for your closing thoughts. What what do you want to underscore? What do you want to leave listeners with um, as we close up? And I, I'm going to start with Joe. Again, thank you very much, Joe, for, for sharing your expertise. What's your closing thought for this morning? Sure, I appreciate you having me. Um, I think what I just want to leave the listeners with is that, you know, management for these species, um, they're, they're closely tied together because mm. of where they live. Um, and I, I think that management for these species um, goes hand in hand. Um, what you do for RCWs benefits Bob Whites and vice versa. Um, there's been a lot of misconceptions over the years that if you are a landowner with, with timber, that should you have or should you get RCWs, your hands are going to be tied and you can no longer manage your timber. Uh, that's simply not true. Um, timber management, fire management, all of these things are important components of managing for woodpeckers as well as for bobwhites. And so I think that's the take home. Um, you know, they're both wonderful species and they're both parts of the same dynamic, amazing system. And I think that, uh, that managing for either is a win-win for, for those species and a whole host of others. I, I saw Jess, you were nodding your head throughout that, that rang, rang true for you. Um, what's your closing thought? I would just say, you know, don't be afraid to engage in, uh, you know, the endangered species community or, you know, to talk about animals or birds or whatever that you think you might have on your property, because they can often, like we talked about, bring added value and it's nothing to be afraid of and, you know, actually can add, you know, lift and help you achieve your conservation and your management goals on your property. You know, everything can go hand in hand. And, you know, there are resources out there and it just really makes it fun and 
you know, I like to tell landowners, if you have RCWs, if you have Bob, uh, Bob White, if you have gopher tortoises or any of those other species that go along with it, you know, or, you know, prairie chickens, you're doing something right. So even then the conversation can be had, well, how do I keep what I have? And, you know, how do I maybe engage my neighbors? So you might be someone that is doing something right already. You know, it's really important to maintain what you have by engaging your neighbors and increasing that connectivity. And that's something we can all work together and provide those resources with. But it's going to be more and more important as we go forward with habitat encroachment and some of these worries we have across the landscape for us to really start working together and, you know, share share our land management ethics, our hunting ethics, and, you know, get out there and talk to your neighbors and work with the chapter, get involved in a chapter and, you know, find your community out there and your support system to keep going. And uh, I think that's that's my closing is it's, it's really important to spread the word, I think. Yeah, um, really well said, and it, it does illustrate once again, I think you both, Joe and, and Jess, mentioned the Red Hills as a tremendous example. It's one of the most heavily managed areas for bobwhite quail. It's the most hunted areas for bobwhite quail, yet it's also the strongest population of red cockaded woodpeckers left on the continent because of that habitat management for bobwhite quail. So they do go hand in hand. And, and what we can do to benefit bobwhite quail through habitat is a benefit to all of us as well. So thank you for sharing your time this morning. And uh, thank you to the listener for riding along with us as we checked out the Red Hills of Georgia and the Red Cockaded Woodpecker. Uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre, thanking you for listening and reminding you, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.